0: Hi everybody, Steve here with a quick plug. If you like the podcast and the Unscripted Paranormal video series and you want to support Adrian and the team's work, please consider joining the Unscripted Paranormal Patreon. You'll find a lot of cool, exclusive stuff over there, including Patreon-only podcasts, videos, and interactive one-on-one events with Adrian himself. It's a really inexpensive, easy way to support the team's work, and if you want even more access there's a VIP tier where you can help pick future locations and stories to pursue, submit questions for Adrian and the team to ask during investigations, and even join Adrian for one-on-one events and other personal interactions. If Patreon is not your thing, you can find Unscripted Paranormal on every media and social media platform. Your likes, comments, shares, follows, and all that good stuff goes a long way. Thanks so much, for being here with us, we appreciate it. Welcome to the Unscripted Paranormal Podcast, featuring the International Paranormal Society and the work of author and psychic, Adrian Lee. For more, visit unscriptedparanormal.com and find us on your favorite social media platform. Welcome to the Unscripted Paranormal Podcast, where we follow Adrian Lee and the International Paranormal Society on real investigations, never faked, manufactured, or embellished. I'm your host, Steve, and I'll be your guide from my perspective as a producer. On this episode, I wanted to take a moment and share some of the things you'll hear over on the Unscripted Paranormal Patreon. If you listen to this podcast, you're already well aware that Patreon support helps us continue to create both video and podcast episodes. We produce a more casual, conversational podcast exclusive to Patreon, as opposed to the investigation-based podcast you get here. Usually, the Patreon podcasts are commandeered by Adrian Lee with myself and members of the International Paranormal Society mixed in. We have a great time, and I just wanted to share some of that with you in what I'd call, I don't know, highlight format, I guess? Let's jump right into this with Adrian and one of my favorite conversations. It's about animal spirits. There's an entire podcast devoted to this over on Patreon. But here's a snippet from that, where Adrian describes a couple experiences, including where he captured the figure of a ghost dog on thermal camera. And that photo has been all over the place. It's really, really captivating. Here's Adrian with that story.
1: Um, I can think of a cat haunting at Manterville Opera House. You may be familiar with Manterville, um in the south there of Minneapolis. But Manterville had an opera house and on the day the opera house was opened, reopened after renovation, a cat ran across the road outside and got run over by a car. So they thought that a cat might be haunting it. So when we were in the basement of that opera house, I started to feel a cat around my feet when it brushes you. You know how a cat rubs its scent on your legs from its sort of chin and cheeks and around that area. And we did for a time actually have cat toys in our equipment cases we would have you know mice and uh, little balls for the cat to interact with so we did for a time carry around with us because you haven't got enough stuff to carry have you without carrying a case full of cat and dog toys just in case the interesting thing was that there was a crawl space underneath the opera house and one of the team was brave enough to go in the mud and dirt under the crawl space and actually found a mummified cat so the suggestion was that the cat perhaps didn't die in the street but ran into the opera house and then found a place to die peacefully and quietly and we did find a mummified cat and i think there's a photograph of that somewhere i wrote about the opera house in Manterville in my book mysterious minnesota then we came across a ghost of a dog this is probably one of the most impressive photographs i've ever taken of any entity never mind a, a spirit of a human or this dog we were in the basement of edinburgh manor and edinburgh manor's in scotch grove in iowa and i think it was the season opener for maybe series seven something like that for the ghost adventures and they went there and i was in the basement of the poor farm there and it was used as a mental asylum briefly as well and scott my team leader who's based up in duluth was sat in the laundry room, and I had a thermal imaging camera running, and we were doing that initial ten minutes of silence just to acclimatize ourselves to the to the light and the dark and the conditions. And Scott said to me, "I can feel a dog rubbing itself on my legs," and he was wearing a pair of shorts at the time. He said, "It feels like something's brushing up against me," and I said, "Let me take some photographs with the thermal imaging camera," and lo and behold, there was a dog that appeared in cold blue that was colder than the surrounding ambient temperature in the shape of a dog and i said to scott put your hand out and he put his hand out and i can see scott of course as a glowing orange and yellow hot-blooded figure and i said if you move your hand just a little bit lower and start petting so scott's now stroking and petting the space next to him but on my thermal imaging camera i can see a dog and the dog sat down so i actually have photographs of one of my investigators actually petting a ghost dog in the laundry room of Edenburg Manor in Scotch Grove, Iowa. So that was very interesting. I mean,
0: how cool is that? And to have the photo to prove it. I want to take you to a conversation that was part of our Brewery Caves podcast, where Adrian and I were talking about a couple of the hair raising moments in the caves, specifically when he asked if an entity was non human. And he got very clear flashlight responses. That was a very creepy moment. Here's more on that. I don't find it necessarily scary when we're when we're at these places and something like that happens. it it does give you the creeps. It might um, heighten your senses a little bit, but I've never once felt scared or fearful or you, you know, I've never felt like there's anything bad there maybe I haven't been in a scary
1: enough place yet but it's just it's more fascinating than anything people have asked me and I'm sure you have this question at some point for me in the future what's been your scariest moment or when have you been scared and my response to that is normally that I've never been scared I've been concerned and there is a difference of course between being concerned and being scared being concerned is a case of okay this investigation isn't going the way i thought it would go Um, if this now kicks off how i think it's going to kick off how do i get my team out of here safely and that might be a case of a spirit throwing something around or not wanting us there it doesn't by default mean it's dark or evil for example when i've investigated Fort snelling here in minneapolis I'm very much aware that I'm British and when I walk through the gates of Fort Snelling that fort was built in 1821 to keep the Brits from coming back down from Canada and retaking the Americas so if it's full of soldiers from the 1820s that are believing that Britain is the enemy and I go walking in there with a British accent my response From them is going to be contextual in terms of history, so because things are happening doesn't mean it's dark and evil. A lot of the times, I've had problems like I've been scratched or pushed or had things thrown at me. You've got to remember, we're investigating very recidivist areas. I've been in Jesse James' farmhouse in Missouri. You know, I've spoken to Cole Younger, I've been at the graveside of the Birdman of Alcatraz. I've spoken to Lizzie Borden, they've done some very dark and difficult things. And everyone listening to this podcast right now knows a grumpy, miserable old man. If you're grumpy, old and miserable in life, you're gonna be grumpy, old and miserable in spirit. So the ones that are causing me problems come from a recidivist era they're grumpy they're miserable they still think they're living in the property and it belongs to them and they just don't want me there and so by default just because things are happening doesn't mean they're dark doesn't mean they're evil we know people like that that are living that are miserable and grumpy and difficult to get on with but I think you know to answer the question I've never been scared just concerned there's been moments where I've jumped or moments where I've yelped but it's because the idiot standing next to me has grabbed me by the shoulder in the darkness or someone's suddenly grabbed my leg because they're scared and we're sitting down or someone's coughed in my ear the moments I can recall where I've jumped is because people that are with me on my team or members of the public that are living have done something I didn't expect them to do when I'm focusing on psychic work and in the darkness sudden one suddenly grabs you by the arm has been the moments I've jumped or been concerned
0: from Caves, I want to bring you to another conversation, this time about cemeteries. Now, one of the things I love about the podcast, and especially the Patreon podcast, is that Adrian will just talk, totally unscripted, without notes, even. These podcasts are entirely spontaneous, and Adrian has so much experience and knowledge, as a historian, as an author, And he'll just share that with us. I'm going to play a segment from a recent Patreon podcast about cemeteries. Take a listen. Today, we have both Adrian and Scott in studio, and we're going to talk about cemeteries. Set that up for us, Adrian.
1: It's very interesting. The history of the cemetery goes back of course to roman and greek times. so the idea of the cemetery being on the outskirts of the town and you often find that in minnesota in the midwest that the cemetery's on the outskirts of the town that was put in place originally by the romans and the greeks do you remember in the bible when jesus was asked to go into a cemetery on the outskirts of town because there was a madman running around the cemetery and i won't go through the entire story now but he's got demons in him and uh, he takes the demons out of the madman and puts them into a pig if you remember that story but that would be an example of a cemetery and a grave being outside of the town because the romans thought that the spirits would come back to haunt those people that were in the town and wouldn't leave them alone so they wanted to push their cemeteries on the outskirts of town to stop people from coming back in spirit and interfering with the living and that's a nice example from roman times of course of jesus being in a cemetery on the outskirts of the town then what happened is that we started in the medieval period to not worry about our dead we used to just give them to a priest or someone that was a cleric we would maybe give them a penny and it didn't matter what happened to the body they would just bury them in consecrated ground and here's a good time to discuss the differences between a cemetery and a graveyard a cemetery is a purpose-built area that has specific walkways there's normally planting there's normally trees the victorians like the idea that they would spend their leisure time with the dead and they would promenade up and down with seating places to walk and that would be a cemetery a graveyard of course is consecrated ground within the boundaries of a church normally so you've normally got a religious building attached to that And so in the medieval period we weren't worried too much about her dead, we just gave them a penny and whatever happened to that person happened to that person and they were normally thrown in pits and the like what started to happen getting towards the industrial revolution and the early victorian period is that people then wanted to delineate themselves from the poor so if you'd made yourself a little bit of money in the textiles trade in the lumber trade or anything else and you elevated yourself into the middle classes for example you didn't want to be buried with working class people so then you paid to have a fantastic mausoleum you paid to have a fabulous um, gravestone and you would have a family plot, and that delineated you, and you'd have a, a a nice barrier around that. You may have seen the fencing and the iron work you have in these types of cemeteries. So we started to get towards the idea of of commemorating the dead. What took place in the Victorian period is bodies started to break the surface of the cemetery. Or the graveyard because graveyards are very small areas and of course the bodies started to break the surface if you're just paying someone to throw them in a pit you're then starting to poison the water table and they genuinely believed that cholera was caused by smells back in the day and uh, miasma and poison air and poisoned night air so cemeteries were purposely built just to try and take care of all the bodies piling up and the stench and everything else so we're now getting to a period where we have cemeteries built on the outskirts of town partly due to tradition from the romans but partly due to the fact that we don't want to poison the water supply and this is where we find ourselves now so when we investigate across the midwest and there's graves going back to the 1850s 1860s they're taking on board all the traditions that have been laid in place from the romans the greeks the medieval period all the way through to the victorians and we're seeing a reflection of that so we've done some interesting investigations cemeteries are a great place to investigate because everything is how it was and how the artists and the sculptures wanted it back in the day everything else in the town has been demolished rebuilt but the cemetery remains in a vacuum it's historically important because it's all still there exactly how they wanted it with nothing bulldozed down nothing added nothing stripped away so it's the only place in the town that still remains untouched by the hammer of modernity and so that makes it useful as a historian to visit and to look at what our ancestors thought of death and how they went about representing everything on those gravestones in terms of symbolism and the like so it's interesting even if we're not doing paranormal investigations to see the history the artwork and everything that's there
0: and today quite recently today before lunch we went out and visited a cemetery as we like to do and we've done quite a few of those now you've done the little cemetery tours And we've done some full-on investigations, like the Brown Cemetery investigation. I'm sure you guys have done many investigations of cemeteries long before I ever started filming you. Are there any that stand out to you as being really special, either of you guys?
1: Well, I know...
0: And I think I mentioned it on on a previous podcast. The Sinclair Lewis one stood out for me because that's the first time that uh, I had talked to someone of that, that was famous, and was able to um, the team was able to verify by asking questions that it it appeared that we were actually talking to Sinclair Lewis. So that one always stands out with me because that's the first time that I've talked to somebody of of, of notable stature.
1: I always go back to a story when I first started investigating in Britain many many decades ago we did an investigation and we're out in the countryside and we're in a medieval church cemetery graveyard and we're wandering around late at night one two o'clock in the morning and I've got a laser thermometer in my hand which is a fairly normal piece of kit to be carrying around and we're in amongst the gravestones wandering around with all this kit and then suddenly a little red dot appeared on my chest and i looked down and i wondered what it was and i'm trying to rub it away and then another red dot appeared and then another red dot and a SWAT team had arrived and they had laser guided um, scopes and we were under observation and we had a SWAT team with live ammunition pointed at us and the police asked us what we were doing so it was quite a scary moment to be holding what looks like a gun which is a thermal laser thermometer and uh, having all this uh, action take place and you've got to remember that in britain our police officers don't carry guns so this was a specific swat team that was put out so he must have been tracked he must have been filmed they must have seen us there Um, so quite a scary moment in a cemetery what happened And what I failed to realise is that the Prime Minister of Britain has a country residence called Chequers. Almost like back in the day the President had Camp David and of course Trump would go off to Mar-a-Lago and so forth. So the Prime Minister gets a country residence called Chequers. And what I didn't realise is that church was in the grounds of that particular residency and the Prime Minister was in at the time so there's us bumbling around in the dark in a cemetery within the grounds of the Prime Minister's residency and and suddenly a SWAT team was called out so once we explained it everyone was laughing and then I went and changed my underwear Um, but one of the interesting things as well not necessarily an investigation that sticks in my mind but just one of the most amazing cemeteries I've ever been to if you look this up I would Think that you should go and visit highgate cemetery in north london highgate cemetery is the most incredible cemetery you'll ever go to it's almost like a set when you're walking around it it's like a film set and it reminds you of disneyland it's one of those places where you have all the ivy growing up you've got statues you've got angels pointing to their heavens they have a section that's an egyptology section and you walk around and it's like being in egypt with pyramids and hieroglyphs they have all the mausoleums they have all of the buildings with the uh, coffins stacked up in them the crypts it's an amazing place so even if you just research that it's highgate cemetery in north london and that's a stunning stunning cemetery and they do tours of that there's a lot of famous people buried in that cemetery Uh, michael faraday is in there and he's the guy that first established um, electricity and made it a, a viable thing back in the day he was on a banknote in britain as the founder or the uh, discoverer of electricity if you like so there's a lot of famous and uh, influential people Karl marx is buried in that cemetery if you're into your politics and history as well many many others but an interesting place to look at and an interesting place to to research i tend to find that cemeteries are very quiet places you're given a send-off you're buried all your friends and family are there it's on consecrated ground the reason we have activity in cemeteries is because we ask for them we specifically say will you come through and talk to us here i don't think for one minute for example that when we spoke to johnny cash at his graveside in tennessee nashville that he's hanging out there 24 7 he happened to come through because we asked for him and then he arrives and we chat to him so cemeteries for me and you can chip in scott as well tend to be very quiet for me and there's not a lot going on there if you have if you imagine that's consecrated ground you're never going to have trouble with a demonic entity or any darkness in your life because the moment you've gone onto consecrated ground and it's blessed uh, they shouldn't be able to follow you in there so they should be peaceful they should be quiet because nothing dark in theory should ever come out of a cemetery or wander into a cemetery because it's blessed consecrated ground if that makes sense
0: Another thing we often talk about when we're here in studio are theories about Sasquatch. And I'm well aware that when we get into the cryptozoology conversations, it can be kind of polarizing. I don't think it's very common practice for a paranormal team, or a psychic for that matter, to be searching for Bigfoot. I've seen... Bigfoot researchers completely turned off by these methodologies, almost to the point of being offended that we're out there treating Bigfoot as a spiritual being. And on the flip side, I've sensed some apprehension from people who may be interested in the team's paranormal work, but when they hear Bigfoot, I can almost feel their sigh, like, come on, what are you doing? But to be fair, when I started producing Adrian and the team's work, It all started because we were working on some Bigfoot material, oddly enough. So, we have this ongoing search or investigation. Every few weeks, we head into the Minnesota River Valley wilderness, where Bigfoot sightings have been reported, and we do some investigative work. Every time we've been out there with the equipment, we've had very compelling results most of which have not been published yet as we're assembling a deeper body of work but it is fascinating adrian and the team believe that there is a spiritual or multi-dimensional aspect to the bigfoot phenomena and they have some incredible evidence to back this up here we join the conversation with adrian on the ghost of bigfoot
1: i think there's such a strong link as well between bigfoot and cryptozoology and the paranormal ted phillips was a good friend of mine he sadly passed on now and he was involved in project blue book and he was a ufologist he was one of the world's leading experts in cattle mutilations for example and he was doing research on a farm in missouri and he said that when a a ufo landed in the field and all the factory workers saw it for the next couple of weeks it really juiced up paranormal activity the workers refused to come into the factory because they saw dead people walking around and going through walls so whatever that ufo brought with it in terms of emf or residual energy uh, juiced up the local area and of course there is trace evidence you can go out and see the burn marks in the field you can trace the radiation levels there's measurable data to suggest that something landed But one of the things he presented to me was that he'd started seeing um, hominids, he started seeing cryptozoological creatures like Bigfoot in the local area and his theory was that some of these UFOs were using portals, using windows, using wormholes to go from galaxy to galaxy and then... Random creatures from other places and other dimensions were suddenly spat out into the woods in Missouri in the same way that there was a cow chewing cud, minding its own business. The sunny looks up, it's very far side, isn't it, and finds himself on an alien planet wondering how it got there. So, in my thinking, there'd always been a link between Bigfoot and paranormal activity. And I think one of the things that bothered me as an intelligent researcher with the paranormal was that why haven't we seen especially if you're going to commit to saying that there's a Bigfoot in the river valley of minnesota why have we not seen a carcass being hit by a car you see every other type of roadkill even in africa you're going to see wild animals you know being hit by cars why haven't we seen a carcass they're so large these creatures that okay a coyote or some wolves may have taken bits of it but, you know, a skull isn't going to disappear. If you imagine the skull of a gorilla and how large that is, that should still be presented. Those should still be around. What are they eating? What are they managing to... That's a large creature that's going to need a lot of protein and a lot of carbohydrates. And it, you can't tell me that's living on a few scraps of berries and the odd bit of leaf out here in Minnesota. So I had a lot of questions that didn't seem to be answered by it being a traditional animal that was a hot-blooded mammal that was just roaming around like some sort of ape or gorilla and if I applied my paranormal thinking to this I suddenly thought what if that's a ghost so you'll get sightings it's going to move things around it can bang rocks together it can run through a cornfield and make a sound of a zipper because ghosts are physical they slam doors they turn faucets on and off they throw things around I've been scratched And pushed by a ghost, so I know there's a sense of physicality, but also you get a sense that they can transform from being a mass to being a non-solid, where a ghost has thrown a cup at me and then walks through a wall, and you'd think that was a dichotomy, you know, of thinking. But quantum physics now presents that you can be physical and non-physical at the same time. And I've written about that in my book ghosts and ufos that's all current contemporary thinking so there is now science being able to back this up and i'm now considering the fact that the ghost of a creature wouldn't leave roadkill the ghost of a creature doesn't need to eat when our ancestors our grandparents have passed and deceased they don't have to worry about food anymore they're just an energy a lot of spirits i've spoken to have told me how much they miss food when i spoke to buddy holly at the crash site in iowa in Clearwater he told me he missed hot dogs John Wayne when I spoke to him at his childhood home told me he missed beer a lot of spirits say they miss the physical aspects of life so all of a sudden a lot of the problems I had with Bigfoot in terms of a limited habitat was suddenly resolved by the idea that that could be the ghost of a Neanderthal man that could be the ghost of a creature we haven't come across yet that could be from another time another dimension if that was neanderthal man or any other kind of neolithic man why couldn't that be the ghost of that and then all of those things that you would attach to a ghost answer all the questions i had that made me think that wasn't a physical beast or wasn't capable of happening in a small habitat like La sewer
0: well let, let me play devil's advocate the, the physical the physical things the physical evidence you've got footprints you've got tracks you've got structures a lot of times strange structures out in the woods that uh, you know would be almost impossible for for a human to create you've got stones being thrown you've got howls smells you've got smells You've got all these things that are... They're they're physical attributes. Physical things. How do we... Explain that somehow. How do we wrap our head around that if
1: these things are, like you said, possibly ghosts? Let me apply every piece of uh, evidence I've found with ghosts and hauntings over the last 25 years to that statement. Um, I lived in a house in Salk Centre that was by the lake... And I woke up several mornings and saw child's footprints through the house, wet child's footprints, as if a child had just come out of the lake and walked through the wooden floor. So I've experienced ghosts leaving footprints behind. And a lot of people that experience haunting say they've heard footsteps going up the stairs or in the hallway. So that's a common occurrence that's labeled and attached to ghosts. Ghosts bang things together, they make noise, they slam doors they move things around, they turn your light switches on and off. So there is a physicality where ghosts do make noise. A lot of people say in the middle of the night I suddenly heard that happen and it's never happened before and I don't know how my book got across the room or how that door slammed, for example. Smells are something that ghosts leave behind. I mentioned in previous podcasts the smell of granddad's pipe or grandmother's perfume or a cookies being baked for example and even bad smells there's been lots of experiments undertaken going back to benjamin franklin benjamin franklin when he was doing his experiments with lightning said that when there was a big electrical discharge the oxygenated uh, oxidized air around him smelled like sulfur so he equated and science has proven this the large electrical outbursts discharges create sulfurous smells so when you read in the bible about thunder and lightning and brimstone and lightning you know lightning and brimstone and sulfur seem to go together throughout history as well for example so i can understand that they would bring smells with them and especially if they're bad smells like a skunk ape and i've been led to believe that when you smell a bigfoot they're not pleasant to smell very musky you mentioned the howling I mean, the classic Dickensian ghost is howling. You know, when he gets visited by the ghost of Christmas present and Christmas past, howling and ghosts is a common occurrence. So everything you've brought up there, I can apply to ghosts and a cultural history of ghosts going throughout mankind and what we experience stereotypically and what gets reported to me and what I found on my investigations. What a
0: fun discussion. We talk a lot about Bigfoot, and it's always very interesting. I hope you enjoyed some of these snippets from our Patreon-exclusive podcasts. And we do produce about twice as many podcasts on Patreon as we do here publicly. And of course, they are very different. If you like the more casual, conversational podcasts, please find us there. We have a $5 option that gives you access to every podcast we produce, and a lot more. Thank you again for listening here on Patreon and, of course, watching our video episodes on YouTube. Your viewership, listenership, and support means the world to us.
1: Hello, my name is Adrian Lee. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My books are available on Amazon and across all good bookshops. You can also find us at our events and expos where I can sign them for you.